Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. True Fiction. Uh, my name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And today we're going to be talking about the film I Heart Huckabees, which is a hilarious romp through existential angst. It is a 2004 film written and directed by David O. Russell. Uh, you might know him from his other works, such as Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, he also did Joy and uh, American Hustle. So Jennifer Lawrence is definitely his darling for those movies. So before we give a plot summary, just general thoughts about the film, David. Well, I'd say that I loved the battle between two different ideologies that was presented. Um, it's a very odd film. You you get an f- experience of surrealism, I would say, when you're going through it. And I think that's intentional. And you even see, at times, surrealist uh, artwork in the film itself, blo- blocking things off and stuff. So... Yeah, I think it's a it's a very enjoyable film, but you're going to be weirded out. Absolutely, and I think that the weirdness is augmented by the fact that the cast is so well-known, right? So many, this is an ensemble cast film, and there are many characters. However, there are about seven main characters. So there's Albert, who's played by Jason Schwartzman. Tommy, who's played by Mark Wahlberg. Brad, who is played by Jude Law. Uh, Don, who is played by Naomi Watts. And then um, there is a detective couple team. Um, uh, the man is played by, his name is Bernard, and he's played by Dustin Hoffman. The woman is played by Lily Tomlin, and her name is Vivian. And then there is a uh, black sheep character that comes in halfway through the film, and her, she's, uh, her name is Catherine, and she's played by Isabelle Huppert, or Huppert. I, she's French, and I'm I'd, not... I'd never heard of her before, had you? Uh, I recognized her from films, but I didn't. I couldn't tell you which one. She's one of those actresses. I do think she did a good job, though, I would say. Absolutely. And then there's like an ensemble cast of um, Richard Jenkins is in this film for a, a really great scene. He's he's probably most famously known as the father in Step Brothers. And um, actually, <laughs> I totally forgot about this until I watched it. But the, since this movie's from 2004, there's a very young looking Jonah Hill also in this film. He's uh, plays a kind of a bratty. Sort of a bratty religious kid, actually. (laughs) Yeah, uh, at a dinner table. So, um, again, this is not a exactly plot-driven movie, as it is a character relationship movie, but the bare bones of the plot is that Albert, Jason Schwartzman's character, um, starts the film with what he considers to be a meaningful trifecta of circumstances that happen to him, and he sees in three different locations what he uh, refers to as what African guy or that African guy. And there's three different scenarios where this um, tall uh, man from Africa is just unknowingly in his life. And so he goes to find a couple of existential detectives 
uh, which he knows about because he went to a dinner and he didn't have the right dinner jacket. And so the restaurant lent him a dinner jacket and it happened to have these two existential detectives uh, business card in his suit jacket. And the detectives are played by Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin. They're a couple and they're going to investigate his life, basically. And anything goes, whether he they want to follow him everywhere. So they watch him brushing, brushing his teeth, eating cereal, basically living his life as we see it. Yeah, there's a great scene early in the movie where she's just outside on his fire escape watching him eat breakfast. And uh, part of it is that he really doesn't want them to <laughs> search everything. He just kind of wants them to find what he wants them to find, which is something I think we can get into big time. Uh, so as the movie goes, the um, investigation into his life unveil, uh, unravels the fact that he has a kind of rival at work um, named Brad, Jude Law's character, and he is starting to spiral. So he gets in touch with his other, who is Tommy, Mark Wahlberg's character, and they develop a relationship. And then uh, halfway through the movie, this um, Catherine comes and totally flips what they are thinking from the original existential detectives and what they told them. And so through many shenanigans, the relationships uh, kind of converge at the end. In, in some very hilarious and yet thought-provoking ways. Yes, which is um, uh, just a, a great, a great, so many, f- like this movie is so smart, so smart, but it is hilarious and presented in a funny way. It's almost as if they were trying to cut the smart with funny. Like when you're having a really stiff drink and you want to cut it with something, they they make it funny so that you can actually even more deeply engage with the th- the smart. Uh, and that's probably, they had to, like David O. Russell probably had to do that because he realized that he would lose an audience, I think, if it was just smart without funny. Because there's a lot of lowbrow jokes or like ridiculous scenarios in this film as well, especially with Mark Wahlberg's character, Tommy, that are just so absurd that you are laughing your ass off while you're not maybe totally understanding what the hell he's talking about. And I think the the absurdity is, is almost philosophic because it's a it's like a, a cold splash of water in the face to be like, this is life and it's weird. Mm-hmm. So again, this, this is an ensemble cast movie, but if there was a main character, I would say it's Albert, Jason Schwartzman. And it starts off right at the beginning of the film with um, a kind of stream of consciousness voiceover by him just swearing all the time he's so angry and it's because his job is i think it's a group called open spaces and it's like an ecological preservation group and he goes and sits down on a rock that's surrounded by police tape because he's like this is my rock i saved this rock from all of the uh dangers of um corporatism that are trying to get into this (laughs) wetlands right and and it seems like it doesn't make clear but it seems like he only saved that rock yeah, like that was the one thing he got. And he's proud of it, but he's <laughs> not happy with Brad, uh, who is a corporate representative from a department store called Huckabee's, which is where the title of the film I Heart Huckabee's comes in. There's a pin later in the movie that, like a, just a round pin that you can wear on your shirt that's I and then a shape of a heart and then Huckabee's. So, um, you know, Brad represents the corporate man and this is actually i think a fairly early uh representation of 
environmental activists, which we have in the case of Albert. Well, I just, I thought it was interesting how he was presented as fairly incompetent, I would say, very well-meaning, but you see kind of throughout the movie that, I mean, he's reading poems and he thinks reading poems are somehow going to convince people, and they're not good poems, like this is not highbrow poetry or this is fairly poor, not even really rhyming stream of consciousness by Albert. And I, I found it interesting that that was the portrayal of the or portrayal of the activists was that they weren't very good and they were easily influenced by the corporate people. Yeah. So um, Albert and Brad are kind of teaming up. So Huckabee's um, represented by Brad is teaming up with open spaces to promote wetland preservation. But deep down, Brad is we find out later Brad's really just doing it to pad his resume, grow, look good look good for his bosses um, because uh, it looks good if Huckabee's Incorporated is working with um, environmental groups. Uh, it's just good PR. So he's a cynical he's cashing in on a good movement for personal gain which it seems, especially at the beginning of the movie, the only person who sees this is Albert. Like Brad has the wool pulled over everybody else's eyes except Albert, which is why Albert is hates him and is so angry at him. And uh, just to, to clarify, he's not really teaming up with Albert. He's it seems like he's pushing him out and actually has already pushed him out sort of at, at this point, uh, even at the beginning of the film. Yeah, like he's basically doing Albert's job better than Albert and uh, all the while pretending like he cares about it and everyone believes him. And, and there's this scene where Albert is sitting with um, with Brad at a dinner table where apparently they're making some kind of deal. And he actually says, you know, we've been getting some bad PR around environmental stuff and we think that you can help us if we team up to actually like push this forward and it's good for everyone. We save this space and you in turn get, or we in, or we save this space and we in turn get to look better to the public. And he's very, he's very upfront about it. Yeah, and I think that initiates annoyance for Albert because Albert genuinely cares about the wetlands and he's like a total stereotype of that bleeding heart incompetent but well-meaning liberal who wants to save everything and he he, he wants to write poems like he wants basically his pr plan is to include poetry uh albert's plan is to include poetry in everything and brad's like well that's dumb we're not going <laughs> to do that what we're actually going to do is get a cardboard cutout of shania twain endorsing this people want quick they want a picture they don't want <laughs> stupid poems and uh so albert is immediately cut both professionally and personally by brad which develops the rivalry at the start and this this um conflict with brad seems to be consuming albert's life and the, the really cool part is when he goes to see these existential detectives, it's, it's like anyone in life, when you're dealing with an issue you might, and you think that this is the most important issue, you might not actually be dealing with the underlying issues that are causing you problems. Absolutely. So the opening credit scene of the film is so great because it shows Albert going to find these two existential detectives on this business card that he found in a suit jacket that he just randomly got at a restaurant so uh, we're primed with a coincidence like it's a coincidence that albert even knows about these detectives and in the opening scene he's wandering through a hallway and um after like about 25 seconds you're like what what is he doing and they just film about two and a half to three minutes of opening credits of him just wandering around aimlessly not able to find the office and he's like 
goes around the same way two or three times, goes back the other way. He's just totally lost. And I just thought that is such a clever, symbolic play. As we find out later, Albert is a little bit lost to himself. So to show him being physically lost in the hallway during the opening credits, once you've seen the film, you're like, oh, that was so fun. And and I, and one of the things I appreciate about his opening dialogue, dialogue, which there is a lot of swearing in, but it's so a human dialogue that for people to be having in their head, should I give up? Should I quit? Do I even want to do this anymore? I can't quit. Words like that are used throughout the, the his uh, internal monologue at the very beginning. And it really sets up a character who is very conflicted. Yeah, I mean, internally, he just seems a little bit manic, I think, in his, like, I mean, the the opening scene with him in the wetlands could have been written by James Joyce. Like, it's just a stream of expletives, things that don't really connect. He cuts himself off, and he's, like, both self-righteous and unsure of himself at the same time. So, yeah, that, that conflict really shines through in uh, his opening monologue to himself. Which I also think is interesting that the director decided to make this environmental activist character so conflicted in himself. Yeah, totally. It's a good introduction to a character so we can see his growth. And so when he first goes into this uh, detective's office, uh, he meets with uh, Vivian, Lily Tomlin's character, and she just basically kind of informs him of what they do. Like they basically research your life by following you around and seeing what you do and what you say and who you talk to, your relationships. And uh, Albert just says to her, look, I just want you to find out about my African guy. And he explains the three different contexts. The first time he saw him, he saw him in a record shop where he was, uh, well, Albert was claiming he was looking for Bob Dylan headshots. And uh, this African guy was looking for autographs. And then he saw him because he was the doorman to one of his friend's buildings. Which we find out later isn't his friend. Yeah. And then also in the front seat of a vehicle that almost hits him, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's planting a tree in the middle of a parking lot. Uh, yes. And, uh, and a Huckabee's parking <laughs> lot. A Huckabee parking lot. And then he gets tackled by some security guard, pushed by the security guard in front of this vehicle, which this... African man, as he describes him, is driving. Uh, yeah. And so these three instances to Albert, because they're so random, and yet the same person was involved in all three with him, he thinks that there's a, like a deeper, maybe metaphysical meaning to this. And so he goes, like, that's a, I want you to find this out about me. Like, I want you to go sleuth around to figure out this. And uh, Lily Tomlin, uh, her retort, Vivian's retort is, um, maybe it's just a coincidence. Like you see people all the time. It's not uh, maybe a surprise that you've just seen this guy. And Albert is so, he's so like emptied by all of the other things going on in his life that he needs subconsciously, he needs this to be meaningful. So he's like, no, you need to find it. It's not a coincidence. And so what Vivian starts doing is just asking him questions about what's going on in other parts of his life. like, why are you talking about that? That's not relevant. I don't care. And she is pressing and he's like, okay, well, if you have to follow me, that's fine. Just don't go to my work situation, which of course is where we find out that's where all of his real anxiety and angst is. And he is feeling so uh, cut and he just wants this one thing found out because to him, this will actually solve his other problems, even though he can't articulate that to himself. And there's a great line in the, in the, detective's office where Vivian says after 
basically Albert's tirade of saying what he wants as opposed to what Vivian is able to offer. Vivian says, well, people like to stay at the surface of things, which is a perfect thing. It's a great line. Yeah. And I think what I love about this is it says so much about Albert's psychology. It, It tells us that really he doesn't know himself at all, but he knows there's a problem. And he has done so, it seems so little personal reflection on what's going on in his life that he's completely unable to allow them into his life. He's, he's basically siloed his life into a lot of different things, and we discover this later. But I think it's a perfect um, example of some uh, the uncontemplated life, let's say. Absolutely. And he is so adamant that he wants this one thing to be found out, and yet he is so resistant to them actually searching him. So he he's like a unknowing hypocrite where he wants... He wants exactly, to. Yeah. He he wants answers to things about him that feel like outside of his grasp. But he doesn't want the answers. At least it seems at the beginning he doesn't want the answers that are going to cut the deepest. Even though, like it's immediately obvious to Vivian that these are the ones that he needs, right? And these three coincidences or whatever we want to call them, he believes could lead. He does say to understanding the meaning of life. And then we have the entrance of Bernard, who's Vivian's husband, in which he's like, well, you want to know the meaning of life? I'll tell you. And he has a very uh, simple and yet complex understanding of what the meaning of life is, which is basically that everything's interconnected, and therefore the ego has to go. It's almost a Buddhist uh, idea of reality. And what I loved is then we move into immediately self-discovery by, um, by Albert, where he's put in a body bag, and told to just close his eyes and let whatever comes into his mind. And then we get a, a surrealist moment where suddenly we realize there's a lot more going on with Albert than just this coincidence. Yeah, and Bernard also does a blanket exercise with him where he just shows him a blanket and says, this blanket is everything. Here's Paris. Here's you. Here's me. Here's Brad. Uh, oh, I, I don't think he says Brad because he doesn't know about Brad yet. But he just, everyone that he knows about or says, and he says, so what does this mean? And Albert's like, oh, everything is connected. And so that's the universal interconnectivity of things is what is underlying Bernard in his approach to helping Albert. And really, this is the introduction of a character in the film, not a, a person character, a personal character, but a ideological character or a, um, a worldview character. And that character is this idea of interconnectedness and how that interconnectedness will allow us to be free of ego and pain and suffering to a degree. Yeah, it's basically the idea of taking a massive step back and looking at the entire forest, not just any given tree. And how that can really alleviate a lot of the pain and angst and um, anxiety and frustration that Albert appears to be manifesting in his day-to-day life. And there seems to be within this worldview an idea that you never really die because you're always just these particles that make you up that are connected. So you were part of a star. He goes on about, you know, we're all star stuff, uh, which we I think most of us have probably heard before, uh, this idea that You've, you've been all kinds of different things. You've been foes and friends. You've been hunter and prey. And I, I find this worldview to be fascinating because I'm not actually sure what existential um, benefit it gives. What does, uh, at its foundation, the idea of interconnectedness do for the existential angst, let's say, that is being experienced by Albert, but is also experienced, by and large, by people? I don't really see how just saying, well, we're all interconnected, 
does anything for that because consciousness we know we well we don't know but we can i think fairly assume that we weren't conscious before our birth or before our our development as as human beings so even if we are going to continue on in these atomic forms how does that deal with the problem of losing consciousness uh i don't think it's supposed to answer that question that's not how it's presented if that's a deeper anxiety that you feel, I'm not sure if this will be uh, helpful. What Bernard is m- more trying to point out to Albert is that all of the things that are actually really digging at Albert's psyche that are giving him all of these fears and worries and nervousnesses and frustrations are all connected. So th- that makes them, you can solve that problem uh, with everything together. So you don't, it's not like a zero sum thing because everything is with everything else. So one side going up doesn't mean the other side goes down because they actually are the same thing. And then by solving one problem, you start to solve other problems. And I agree. I just, I think it actually plays into later in the movie where uh, Albert basically rejects this philosophy uh, because he didn't feel like it was actually helping him. Yeah. And Um, One of the next things we find out about Albert that really reveals his deep anxiety is that the reason he was in that record shop in the first place, not to find Bob Dylan (laughs) photos, but was actually he was planting his own headshots so that people would see him um, associated in with other musicians or other famous people. So he was uh, betraying an anxiety there of not being seen, not being important enough. So he had to like which is a kind of a, like, it's, it's weird. It's super weird to, like, plant your face. In yeah, other, no, it is. In people's famous, like, other famous people's faces to be like, oh, maybe someone sees it and sees the most like, Oh, is that guy famous? I saw his uh, head in these shots. So he lied initially to Vivian about his reason for being there, which, of course, is what she is figuring out about him. He actually lies about two things because he, he says that he was, when they met the... When he met the man as the doorman, he says that he was visiting a friend. Turns out he was visiting his parents. Yeah, the uh, we later find out the African guy's name is Stephen, uh, and he is a refugee living with a family, and he is actually the doorman of Albert's mother and stepfather's, the building that they live in. And And I think that's one of my favorite parts of this movie is how they reveal, through humor, the anxieties that characters are going through, not just Albert. Yeah, and so when Albert tells uh, Vivian and Bernard that they have full reign, like he finally agrees, okay, yeah, you can research me, whatever. But he says, not my work situation. And then, of course, the very first thing Vivian does is go to where he works and start talking to people. He go, She goes to a meeting. And plants, like, listening devices. This It's kind of a, almost a spy movie. There's a, a small amount of absurdity to it. But she's, like, going in and planting these listening devices everywhere and cameras. <laughs> and giving off the impression that she's supposed to be there and everyone who's wondering or like if anyone does wonder why she's there it's almost like they're the kind of stupid one for even wondering that so she plays it off so well that and and then but because of her presence through some confluence of events albert gets thrust into the spotlight in a negative way and so he gets really frustrated with her um that she brought it to his work situation 
Yeah, and I think that's interesting that he wanted to separate work from his existential life. Like, why was he, so, like, our work, our vocation, the thing we do in a very, like, I forget who said it, but you become what you do, right? And I, I think it's fascinating that, that he didn't want that part of his life exposed because obviously that was the part that was causing him the most anxiety. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think it's Aristotle has a line where he says, we, we are what we consistently do. Uh, which is an interesting take. And yeah, I was really like, that was so pointed and funny to me that Albert insisted that he wanted. So in Albert's mind, he wants them to research what he thinks is the meaning of life. But he also like, so he has this wish that's full of gravitas and grandeur, like the deepest thing that someone could do mixed with this really trite, but don't come to where I work. And so like that contrast is so funny. And especially because it made me think like one of the things my dad always said to me was work is just your life. Like, like not work is life, but that it's just something that you do. That's part of your life. And so it's not like there's a sharp contrast and that's, there shouldn't be exactly what's yeah. his point. There shouldn't be a sharp contrast between work and life. And so you should try to find some sort of work that is an extension of the way you want to live. I think that's an incredibly important way to find contentment and happiness. Like, I don't understand fully people who continue to do something for years and decades. Now, I don't want to say that there are, there are obviously circumstances that people can't, but the idea that you would spend the majority of your time every day doing something that you don't even like or believe in is a really hard one to swallow and, and certainly not a path to finding fulfillment or existential peace. Yeah, and so it's like a it's like a total light bulb goes off. Like the moment, <laughs> I mean, there aren't like a lot of existential detectives. I, at least I don't know <laughs> I, I've in, never the, met in the real world. But it, maybe like if you're a therapist, let's say, or like a, yeah. someone in psychology, and you have a client or a patient, or someone comes in and they're like, "Okay, here's what I want you to look at, and here's what I don't want you to look at." It's like, "Okay, I know what I'm looking at. I'm obviously if there's something you don't want me to see, that's what needs to be seen." Or maybe you're having relationship problems, and you go to a therapist to talk them through, which is which is awesome, and you should do. But then you say, "Well, yeah, but I don't want to talk to her, that her or him about that. I want to uh, to leave that part of our relationship private." It's just it's this desire to cite or um, silo off areas of our life that we don't like and not addressing them. That could be a big problem. One of the things my brother has always said to me is, oh, I just work and I love my brother, but he says, I just work so that I can live. And I understand that. And he, and he's very good at what he does. But I also think that mentality can, can stifle the growth that you want as an individual. Yeah. And meaningful work is, I would say, one of the best higher order pleasures of life where if you feel like you have work that you're doing, whether it's your vocation or just a hobby to be involved in something that you feel uh, when you're done, it's like, it's like the mental equivalent. If you go on a run or you exercise, like it's hard, but when you're done, it feels so good. You just have more endorphins moving in your body being involved in meaningful work, I think is the mental and emotional equivalent of something like that, where even if it's really hard work in the moment, if it's something that you know is bettering yourself or others, uh, it's so crucial to being fulfilled, right? 
And there's no job that couldn't be meaningful. It's more about your approach to that job than it is, uh, and, and your feelings toward that job than it is the actual job. Uh, and I find it fascinating. Uh, there's a guy who started a, a Honeywell truck business. He was the guy who started Honeywell, and he's now worth a lot of money. But he realized that not a lot of people wanted to deal with shit. And so he said, well, I'm going to do what no one else wants to do, and I'm going to become the best at it. And he, and he loves it now. And he talk, like, that's one of the things he enjoys talking about, and it's just fascinating to me. You could, any, you could do anything. It's, it's how you approach it. Yeah, totally. And Albert, he has a bad attitude. He has right? a terrible he has a, attitude. He has an absolutely terrible attitude, and that's part of the tragedy of his character at the start of the movie where he, he wrote the charter for this open spaces. Like He's in charge of the coalition. He is actually, on paper, doing what he would want to do, what he loves. And what he cares about, yeah. Yeah, and he is attributing all of his problems to Brad and... When he does that, he gives himself an excuse to not take responsibility for the fact that he's writing shitty poems that nobody wants. That he has like, this weird fascination and crush on Brad's girlfriend. Yeah, he's he's a little bit jealous of Brad, envious of Brad, but he's mad at Brad, <laughs> and so he's manifesting um, hatred. He's attributing all of the problems in his life to Brad, and not looking hard at himself and saying like I like poetry but maybe it's not what open spaces needs to facilitate good ecological and environmental spaces in an urban area he he just there's not a moment of reflection for him near the start of the movie where he's like okay I have a shitty attitude and I'm writing bad poems that even people who believe in me in this job don't want yeah there's a great scene where they're like we don't want to send out the poems we don't want poems and he's like, well, that's what we need to do. It's, he's very stuck on one way of doing things. Yeah, he's very intransigent. And he's he's got a little bit of a, what would you call it, like a power complex or an authority complex where he feels like he he can rest on his laurels, right? Like, I wrote the charter. This is my coalition, so we're going to do it my way. And he doesn't even leave himself room to improve. And that's one of the great ironies of his relationship with Brad at the start of the movie is that even though Brad is cynical as fuck coming in here, just trying to push Albert out, it's not like Brad's ideas are terrible or and he's and he's accomplishing way more his, while uh, we see Albert's leadership style is one of uh, just saying, I'm the boss, do what I say. Brad's more conciliatory. He's, he's being friendly with people. He's saying, I think, you know, that's a great idea, or this is another direction we can go. He's, he is persuading people, whereas our friend Albert is, is using the cudgel of authority to kind of beat or try to beat people into submission and ultimately being unsuccessful. And Albert can slowly start to see the tides changing and the sympathy of the people that he works with slowly going towards Brad and away from him. And his response to that is not to change his own behavior, but it's to double down on his hatred for Brad. And, and we, we have scenes where he goes into this surrealist world where he's like hacking at Brad with a machete. He just hates him so much. Yeah, like the inside the body bag moment, it's supposed to be like, in a way, a kind of sensory deprivation scenario where Bernard tells Albert, okay, now just see what you see, think what you think. And it's mostly, mostly Brad and Brad being a jerk and uh, Albert having a machete, like you said, cutting him up. And it's it's humorous. Like, it's really funny, but it's just, especially at the early in the movie, it's Bernard learning what's actually getting 
under Albert's skin. And I, I'm, we're not sure how he finds out what's happening in this dream state, sensory deprivation state, but he seems to know as soon as uh, Albert comes out of the out of the body bag. Yeah, or maybe even while it's happening. Yeah. I guess we're supposed to just accept that maybe Albert's telling him about it, even though we don't hear that voiceover. We we hear, well, I guess we do. We hear the voiceover a little bit. Oh, yeah, what are you seeing? But that we, kind of stuff. like, as the audience watching the film, we have a visual of what's going on that presumably Bernard doesn't. So I don't know how Bernard knows the detail about Albert's visions that he does. But he, but he seems to know, yeah. Yeah, totally. And this might be a good segue into Tommy and how we meet Tommy in the film. Yeah, so um, what happens is Albert has a, mini meltdown because of Bernard and Vivian showing up at his work situation, which he asked them not to. And I guess part of Bernard and Vivian's shtick is that they have what are called uh, your other. So if they have a client, they pair them with another client who could use uh, a friend, a really. friend, someone to like lean on, you know, we all need someone to lean on. <laughs> we all need somebody to lean on. Yeah. Or, um, as uh, the, I believe it was the great philosopher John Lennon once said, you get by with a little help from your friends. Uh, you get high with a little help from your friends. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, tell us about Tommy. Well, I, I like Tommy as a character because... He's the best. He, like, to me, he's the best character in this film. And, and definitely not the character that I would want to be, but the character that is so... It's so well acted, and in my mind, he, it's, it's a man of conviction. He he finds whatever his truth might be, and he just runs with it to its total conclusion. So so we first meet Tommy because uh, Bernard is going to his house because there's some kind of crisis going on, and basically his his girlfriend, I believe it is, is throwing him out of the house, and we don't we're not sure why at the beginning, and it it seems to be because he's completely embraced nihilism, and he's very concerned about petroleum products, and he thinks that the world is basically ending, and nobody seems to care. There's all this suffering in the world, and everything's meaningless. And why can't his girlfriend understand that? And he's got a daughter there as well. Yeah, so he's he's despairing. Like, he is just, um, there's all of his shit all over the lawn, and his girlfriend is in the midst of moving out or kicking him out. It's not quite clear. But he, rather than trying to figure out how to, like, get her to stay on terms that are affectionate, he's just kind of berating her by hey, he's, saying... He's not being kind to her. He's basically saying, you are unenlightened, and I've seen the truth. Why and... are you so stupid? Listen to me about the truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, he is a nihilist. At least we're, like, led to believe these are his tendencies, but he's not, like, happy about it. He's, like, super bummed out because he wants there to be meaning. He's just despairing that there isn't. Yeah, yeah. He's convinced there isn't meaning, but he would really like it if there was. And ironically, he still has deep convictions that are anti-petroleum. Like, it's almost... It borders on the conspiracy uh, thinking type of mentality where all of the problems in the world stem from people's need for petroleum and the American government's involvement in getting petroleum. And so it's his, it's what he comes back to all the time. Yeah, he's constantly re-referencing that and all these diseases that are occurring and he, and he berates people over it throughout the movie. But really what it comes down to is he's just, he's he's got this weird conspiracy theory thing and he doesn't believe there's any meaning and, and that life is just suffering and painful. So like if you're familiar with Mark Wahlberg, which I imagine many of you are, you could just imagine like a tirade uh, in Mark Wahlberg, in, in Marky Mark style, where he's just, he's incredible in this film because he had to memorize so many lines that are complicated and and he just delivers them with such tenacity and verve. And, and like, in a really weird way, he's charming in his despair. 
Yeah, like one of the lines that I really liked was, "Mummy doesn't ask because mummy doesn't care." When he's speaking to his daughter, yeah. basically yeah. he's saying, "He's saying your mom is just an unthoughtful lady who doesn't understand. She doesn't care." Yeah, as they're leaving, he like goes down to look his. Eight, I think she's like eight or nine. His daughter in the eyes, and he says that line, and he also says, "Look." Uh, mommy doesn't mind buying clothes from little girls like you who live in Indonesia who have to work 20 hours a day. We're going blind. Yeah, like she's and like dramatizing information for a child that he's just like, you need to know about this because the world is terrible and you need to know about it right now. Yeah. (laughs) So we've got, yeah, we've got this character who he doesn't seem to have very good social skills in general. Also, like he seems to be, maybe he's uninterested in social skills, but he's, he's not at all empathetic. He he so immediately sees what he doesn't like about what other people are doing and has no problem telling them. But it, so when he's introduced to Albert, though, interestingly enough, his first question is, "What do you think about petroleum products?" And then, or "What do you do for work?" And do you have a car? And Albert turns out doesn't have a car. He rides his bike everywhere, and immediately he he loves that. And it, there's this uh, con- connection that happens where. Tommy says something, I think he says like, oh, I can see why they think we'd be good together. Right, immediately, he, and, and it's interesting that he has this trust in Bernard and Vivian. I actually really liked, I liked that Tommy is committed to acknowledging a lot of the hard things. When he brings up sweatshops to his daughter, obviously not a good scenario for a kid and it's like you know she doesn't want them to go blind it's it's poorly timed yeah (laughs) but he understands that it's important to talk about sweatshops and like what we think about that that our clothing comes from things like that and what that means and giving the devil his due in this scenario what i like about tommy is that he is acknowledging a lot of the deeper harder things that go on in the world that are maybe uh, definitely not pretty Uh, that we kind of just shrug off or slide to the side or don't think about because of how exhausting and deep and painful they can be and like helpless a single person might feel against these huge inequalities in the world. And he takes his beliefs, because he comes to seemingly believe this, this ideology, he takes it to its conclusion. There's not a lot of cognitive dissonance. He's not saying, well, this is true, and then acting as if it wasn't true. And I appreciate that about anyone, really. If you really believe something, then you should act as if it's true. Yeah, he's um he's like a pretty committed misanthrope. Yeah. Isn't he? Like he <laughs> he he walks the walk. Like he genuinely he's very unpleasant. Oh, yeah, very. Yeah, and 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 no one should treat anyone the way he's treating his girlfriend. <laughs> Absolutely not. However, again, because maybe, and this might be more because it's Mark Wahlberg, so it's great casting. Like, he's a little bit charming. Yeah. Still, while there, he's doing it. There's a devil-may-care attitude going around where he's like, I'm just going to believe what I believe and who cares what anyone else does. And because the, his lines are so articulate, you're kind of like, <laughs> this is fun. Like, I, I, I've I, never enjoyed being so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The book. So going to the book that he's been reading. He's been reading this book by... This is the first introduction of our, our character who seems to be the antithesis to our friends Bernard and Vivian. And they later reference that they know who she is and what is she, what is she doing in America. And she has taken the dark side. Nothing's connected. Nothing matters. Uh, one of the lines that Tommy uses is, you know, only 5% of the universe even has uh, any matter in it. And, and what, what is that all about? 
yeah, her um, her line is basically something like cruelty, meaningless, and manipulation. So this is the character Catherine, played by Isabel Huppert, who we find out later. Well, Bernard kind of tells us right away when she, he, because Bernard sees Tommy holding her book, and she used to be a student. Her, their best student. Apparently. Yeah, their best student of, of Vivian and Bernard. So they, the three of them had all worked together, but she kind of broke off with, uh, I guess, like a fundamental philosophical di- disagreement about their approaches to helping their clients. Yeah, and, and her way of helping clients, we, we learn later, is basically to get them to embrace suffering, realize the world is just a painful, horrible place that you end up uh, dying in and that we're all just on this path. To, and if you can embrace that suffering then in some ways you can accept it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's the complete negation of what Bernard was talking about earlier with the blanket. Universal interconnectivity, she is universal non-connectivity. Everything is random and isolated. And it's chaotic. They use the word chaotic. Yeah, and, and accepting that existential fact is actually what will give you peace. And so Tommy, once once paired with Albert, starts introducing... Albert to this opposite philosophy from Catherine. But Albert hasn't quite gone to the dark side as, as it's referred to in the movie until he reads uh, his file. So there, there's this uh, party going on at Vivian and Bernard's office and Tom, Tommy looks at uh, Albert and says, they won't let you look at your file. And immediately uh, he's like, why won't they let you do that? And Albert says, I don't know. And Tommy says, well, you're your own person. You should be able to look at your file. So I'll distract them with some kind of outburst or something, and you can go and read the file. And Bernard and Vivian find out that he does this and makes them really angry. This makes Albert... Albert's angry that they're angry, so they have a little bit of a spat. And then Albert and Tommy go off together to... um, Because they find out in the file who his African guy was like they find out where he lives his address so they go to see him and he's playing basketball in the front yard with a couple of kids and it turns out that his name is Stephen and he is a refugee um, that this family has taken in and he's working he's a student he's working as a doorman as well and so he invites Tommy and Albert in for dinner which leads to my favorite scene of the movie it is a uh, it is a very jarring scene because uh, you're not expecting it. I mean, who gets invited for dinner that quickly? And and the family we find out through the dialogue is a pretty fundamentalist Protestant religious family. Mom, dad, two kids, and uh, there's a line where the daughter she looks like she's about twelve or eleven, and she says, "Why would you need to go see a therapist? Why don't you just talk to God?" But they're also a weird form of American patriotism religion as well. Like they believe there's almost nothing that America can do wrong and jobs are what really matter. And it's a caricature of, I guess, a character of American family. Uh, Totally. And because Albert is a environmentalist and the dad is not, you know, he's uh, I think he's an electrician or something, but he depends on coal burning and and development of any kind totally and and he's like pretty insistent that that's actually what has made the united states such a great country and so albert is trying to forward the point that that you can have both you can have both you can have an economy and you can have like ecological spaces open spaces in a town like in an urban area right yeah exactly and and 
well, I want to hear more about why this was your favorite scene, but I, I find it really a cool, again, they're making fun and they make it this awkward situation. It's kind of absurd, but they're ma- he's making a really good point. He's showing this conflict between two ideologies. The entire movie seems to be layers. It's, it's a layered movie talking about capitalism, environmentalism, uh, nihilism. We're, we're seeing representations of these ideas, perhaps um, satire of these ideas to some degree, but it makes you think about these ideas. Yeah, and there's a moment where Albert's like basically on his own diatribe about how you can have an economy, you can have open spaces, and this is important, and he just kind of stops talking. Like he just kind of like, like he, you, the look on his face, you realize he's like had an epiphany. And later we realize the epiphany is he's actually figuring out how these things, like it's a blanket moment for him. There's an interconnectivity and Bernard and Vivian point that out later in the movie. But while, so he stops talking and the dad especially gets like, he's confused. So he asks Tommy what Tommy does and Tommy's occupation is he's a firefighter. So, so immediately the mother's like, Oh, that's awesome. God bless you. Yeah, thank you for your service. Yeah, and Tommy says, don't thank me. We burned petroleum. It's terrible. <laughs> so he starts going off on a petroleum, and then we cut back to the dad, like, losing his mind, being like, that petroleum, we need it. It's made the world great. It gives people jobs. What are you talking about? And, oh, and then he says, <laughs> and, like, he betrays something that I actually find really unpleasant, and that's a euphemism of deeply religious people is he says why would god put it on this planet if he didn't want us to exploit it yeah it's that, something that to that mentality degree. of um everything on our creation is for uh, mankind to just use to whatever and they might have but like if you go into uh it's a it's an ignorant religious standpoint because i think more enlightened religious people would say no it's it's ours to steward yeah as opposed to just have pure dominion over exactly and and I think that caricature again is actually more common than people realize and I and a dangerous one. And so um in that moment there Tommy roasts the father, one of my favorite in the movie. Um so the dad has just said why he gave us the petroleum so we could use it. And Tommy says to him, he gave you a brain, but you messed that up too. <laughs> so like that I, yeah. that line is so like so like so rude to the dad's face about the dad at the devil may care kind of thing. Like, it's just like in front of his kids. And which, so like, which almost immediately leads to them being kicked out of the house. Yeah. Like basically Albert and Tommy are sitting in at this table for probably less than five minutes. And they go from pleasant exchange of strangers who are getting to know each other to like full out yelling at each other. And so the reason this scene is probably my favorite in the movie is just how it goes from zero to a hundred so fast all the while with Jonah Hill, who plays the son, and the daughter being like really confused, and Stephen being confused, and the parents just being so angry, and then Tommy and Albert being angry. There was another uh, nuance in that in that scene that I loved, which was the condescension that was given to Stephen, as if he owed them something for bringing them to, him to the country, and, and he wasn't allowed to have his own opinions, and they were disappointed in Stephen. Uh, for bringing these people and being associated with these people. Yeah, so we definitely get the impression that these two parents are not the most self-aware or thoughtful because they do project a blame 
onto Stephen. Like, why did you bring these people into our house? And Stephen is, I think they say he's like 18 and he doesn't know. So he's like, I'm so sorry. And yet it's <laughs> and he, like and clearly he's obviously not... very troubled by their, their being upset, but there are lines in it that are just blatant. Like they're using him as a virtue signaling. They're saying, look at the good deed we're doing. How could you say that we don't care about the planet? We brought this refugee into our home. And instead of allowing that to speak for itself, they feel like they have to keep reiterating. There's three, I think there's three iterations of that where basically they're like, we are so awesome because we're taking care of this refugee that we brought into this country. Yeah, it's, um, it's like a humble brag. It's kind of virtue signaling, but it's even worse than that. It's taking a good deed and using it as a cudgel against people's arguments yeah look how good we are we're gonna take refugees in so that gives extra weight to our points and yet maybe that might in best case scenario but they don't treat steven as well as they should probably they blame him for they it's like a proxy blame right and this this is actually something i really do not like um i hear it quite often like in media or on internet media where they kind of will blame a podcaster or a public figure for the behavior of someone who claims to like that person. Yeah. Right. So let's say someone in the world does something negative and then we find out that they were a fan or read the book of so-and-so. And so, and so uh, <laughs> maybe not a would be journalist will go up to that person. Like, how do you feel about um, this terrible person being a fan of you? It's like, what are you supposed to say? How do you control who your fans are? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's like Stephen had just, like, he'd seen Albert before, but he didn't know him. So he was just being polite and inviting them in. And there's a line where the dad says, it's okay, you didn't know. But but there's also, like... The reaction was still to blame him, some, which pretty, is ugly. There's a pretty clear mockery by the children at the beginning saying, oh, Stephen didn't know about running water, and he didn't know he about food, and there was... I forget exactly the the lines that they used, but they're they're openly mocking him at the dinner table, like, "Oh, this this basically lower form of humanity." And sadder than that is that they're mocking him, but they're not really they're not doing it in a way where it would seem bad taste. Like they're kind of like, "This is the thing that they're most proud to show Albert and um, Tommy that they can." Uh, make fun of where this guy came from and how much better his life is now. Like this is the thing that they want Albert and Tommy to know the most about yeah. him. It's it's a very uh, I, I don't want to call it racism because I think there that's a, a more a stre- extreme term, but it's ignorance. They think that Tommy and Albert are in on the joke with them. Yes, but they're yes, not. But they're not at all. So it's, it's and the audience definitely isn't. When you're watching this, you're like. What is going on here? Yeah, this family is not pleasant, but they're like they're funny because they're so dumb in a way. Like they're they're so ignorant to what Albert and Tommy are trying to say and maybe even Steven's background that it 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 is it does come off again as humor because this is a funny movie, but it's like it would be terrible to live there. But it's like one of those uncomfortable humors, right? Where you're basically like, "Ooh, what is going on here? Well, this why? is exactly why Albert and Tommy lash out. Yes. Right? Like, this is exactly why they are like, what are you talking about? This is terrible. No, I don't think we need that. Uh, it, it spawns their anger. And so what happens next 
is that it turns out Vivian was actually monitoring this interaction. She was there. Her, she's never off the job, right? So she <laughs> Seemingly actually, they have an infinite amount of time to just follow Albert around. Yeah, I, well, I think they... Well, they probably say early in the movie that they take one client at a time. Um, some of them are pro... Like, so she's doing Albert's case pro bono, but we definitely get the sense that both Bernard and Vivian are super into this case and want to do it well. Yes, 100%. So she's actually monitoring Tommy and... Uh, Albert and like Albert doesn't suspect this because they'd actually just had that big fight at the office previous. And so she says something to him is like, he said something about a cat and you stopped. You want to tell me about this cat? And there is a scene where like the, the religious father and Albert in the middle of their argument, for some reason, I can't remember the dad asks him about a cat and Albert makes a little stop and he's like, "Uh, what cat? What do you mean? And that's something that Vivian picked out on. I loved that moment as well because uh, Vivian is noticing the really any cue the meaning in the noise yes right the signal in the noise the signal in the noise right so that's like that's the thing she's like okay he said something about a cat you want to tell me about a cat and albert doesn't want to talk about the cat not at all right and and then bernard um says but i noticed he it's more bernard's more the positive one he's not the the fact-based analytical one he's the feelings one and he's like i noticed you paused and you kind of close your eyes and you realize the internet interconnectedness of everything yeah, so he points out to Albert that he's doing what Bernard said he should do, and Albert needs to know that. Albert goes to his office for a big presentation with the the head of Open Spaces International and is absolutely destroyed by Brad. Yeah, and uh, he brings Tommy with him as well, actually. Everything that Albert didn't want to happen is happening, which is that he's lost his job. He's in this point where he could probably... Be, and and uh, Vivian and Bernard call this the unraveling. He loses his job in this scene. Yes, yes. So he's lost his job when he meets Catherine. So so it's interesting because he walks in, but he doesn't change any of his tactics. He's obviously losing the crowd. He's lost the crowd. And the CEO of Open Spaces is in. Yes. For this. So like and, the, and he, the big this boss really matters to him because he's got to prove that he's got it under control, that he can push this agenda forward. And and he can't. And Tommy's there, and Tommy has a great line, too, where because basically all the people in the room, uh, there's Brad, and then there's all of the open space employees that are unhappy with Albert's ideas, and they're all bickering with each other. And Tommy says, um, "Why are you guys fighting with each other?" And this like really showed me what I think the problem I have with activism is like. If you have activism is almost always very often underlied by an ideology and environmentalism has its own strains of like intransigent ideologies that you need to like you need to be pure. You need to have pure motives for everything with the environment. And everyone's got a different idea of what purity is. So yeah. some people are like the most important thing is, say, the Great Lakes or, or plastic in the ocean. Or some people say the most important thing is climate change. And they're always fighting with one another. Yeah. So activism is such a hard thing because the people within the group are always so at odds with each other. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, again, it's a, it's another problem with ideology is that it's inflexible. And that thing's, and that is exposed, but also it's easily led by charisma, which we see in this scene as well. Actually, Christopher Hitchens has a great line about ideology where he says, um, like these ideology, an ideology can break, but it can't bend. And that's something that, Tommy is noticing in this scene is that all of these people involved in this 
open spaces who are ideologically driven and activists and environmental activists, they can't compromise and they can't negotiate with each other because all of their own ideas are more important than the other person's and they're important from beginning to end and nothing can change about them. So all they do is argue with each other. And then we have Brad walk in. Yeah. (laughs) So when Brad's there and Brad's going to give his presentation to uh, this Oren character, the CEO of open spaces, (laughs) what does Albert do? to present he's like okay i'm so mad i wrote a poem so he goes yeah. back to his, <laughs> his poem <laughs> which is everything nobody wanted and it hasn't worked and literally the whole crowd was like we don't want to hear your poems and brad takes over he's like okay we don't want to hear your goddamn poems we're not going to do that it's stupid like so brad is really starting to hate a little bit on albert more outwardly than he has been he's been like really uh, placating and um, conciliatory a little bit patronizing too yeah, like there's a lot of yeah there's it's there's an underlying patronize or yeah he's patronizing. So this is the first scene where Brad starts being like overtly um, antagonistic to Albert, and this really sets Tommy off because Albert is now Tommy's friend. So Tommy's like, "Get off of him, man, go away!" And 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 Tommy punches Brad in the face, like <laughs> full out in front of this huge group of people. And Brad is in this moment more popular than Albert to the crowd. So this is the final straw, and he's like, "Get out! You're done! You're not here!" And this is almost. This is the scene where the real Brad comes out in a sense. He's been planning this for a while. I think he's he's been slowly... The reason that Albert's experiencing anxiety is because he knows what's happening, which is that Brad is, wants Albert gone, doesn't think Albert's effective, kind of thinks he's a useless human being. And this is the moment in the film where he's getting his... Uh, he's cutting him out. And we see this throughout society where suddenly someone will be cut out uh, by someone who's been planning it for a while. And then there's a vote, actually. And then the CEO is like... Uh, Albert, you're not just you're not doing a good job. You're gone. Yeah. So Albert's fired, and we do find out later in the film that Brad had been planning all this because he has his own intervention moments with Bernard and Vivian. All right. So after he's fired, he kind of just leaves the building, right? And he's kinda, he's upset. He's upset with Tommy. He's upset with Bernard. He's upset with Vivian. His life has come crashing down. He's I forget what uh, Bernard calls it, but basically his life is unraveling. And um, as he's out on his bike, uh, Catherine approaches him in a car, and he recognizes her from Tommy's book. And so he says, oh, it's you. What do you want? And she says, ah, there's something I want to show you. Let me take you somewhere. And so where she ends up taking them him to is uh, his mother's apartment, uh, his mother and stepfather. And it's actually the building where Stephen is a doorman, and uh, it's not his friend's building, which so is another, another lie. lie. It's another lie that he told to Vivian from the start of the movie. Is He's basically deflecting from these things. And so we're already a little bit primed. Oh, okay, maybe he doesn't have a great relationship with his mother. And when we go upstairs, we meet his mother and stepfather. And both of them are not rude, but they're also not polite exactly. They're kind of a little bit grumpy, but not like they're... They understand uh, social norms and are like they're surprised that Albert just kind of shows up, and they, they automatically it seems like they kind of think he's a failure. Yeah, like they're they're polite to him, but not excited to see him. And his mother says, "Oh, I found this marketing job, which is what Brad does. You should maybe you should do that. You'd be good at that." Yeah. So not real any comments about his poetry or his, or his environmental activism. Yeah. Or like the things that are actually meaningful to Albert, which is very important because what, uh, of what Catherine who also accompanies Albert up to the oh, house. Weirdly, she's already in the room somehow. And it, and we, this is when we realize that 
that Catherine's taken a lot of uh, her mentorship from Bernard and Vivian and is basically also a detective of sorts and has been doing this detective work on his life. Yeah, like as an aside, this whole movie, Bernard, Vivian, and Catherine are just kind of everywhere. Yeah, they're almost omnipresent. Yeah, they are. They're they're totally omnipresent, which is hilarious because um, they're there to observe everything that's happening and report back to him like... Uh, on himself. A, a third-party conscience for Albert. <laughs> exactly. So they show up there, and they're, and they're standing there talking, and uh, Catherine arrives in the room with his journal from when he was nine years old and asks the mother to read the journal entry. And it's from the time, the day that... Uh, Albert's cat died, who we find out is the same cat that he reacted to in the scene earlier with the family when the father asked about a cat. This is the cat that immediately Albert thinks about because this is a cat that was really important to Albert. He loved it. It was um, a friend, a, a companion. And on this day uh, when he was nine, this cat died and his mom was not the most motherly about it. What did yeah, it she sound- do? So it sounds like whoever showed up, at, someone showed up at the house to have uh, a tea or something with his mother. And immediately the mother kind of says, oh, your cat died, uh, and that's it, and doesn't try to comfort him or anything. She prefers the company of this stranger who she somehow thinks is important, who she's only ever met once, over comforting her son. And it was exactly what Albert needed in that time was his mom, mother's comfort, and she... Um, so easily pushes him aside to talk to someone who isn't even that important to her. So then he leaves the house through the window and goes out and starts crying, apparently, to some of his friends. Because, I mean, he's a nine-year-old and his pet that he really cares about has just died. And so uh, there's a great irony that happens in this scene because what Catherine points out is, like, Catherine makes the connection between Albert and Stephen which was Albert's original goal to find his connection, whereas Vivian just said his coincidences. Catherine says to Albert, Stephen is a literal orphan, and in this moment you became an emotional orphan, and that is your connection. And, the, and of course, this is coming from the character who's arguing that nothing is connected and everything is meaningless. But she's showing this connection. Yeah, and I'm not really sure if I'm supposed... Like, as an audience, I'm not supposed to... I didn't get a sense that this was a self-aware moment for Catherine, which maybe is a little bit undermining of her own philosophy, which is, again, really clever because every single character in this movie, even the ones who are omnipresent, have their flaws or mistakes or gaps in their own ideas that they're doing one thing or saying another uh, unconsciously. Yeah, exactly. And I, I completely agree. I think it's a really clever move by the director to show the, the inconsistency which you might not notice if you're kind of just watching it for fun, but when you are watching it and seeing what's going on, you're like, wow, he did this so intentionally to to set it up for later in the movie. Yeah, and so this moment of revelation for Albert really sells him on Catherine. There's actually some very good acting here because you can see the realization moment for him, the light bulb moment of, I am an orphan. I'm, well, no, I'm an orphan of neglect. Across the board... The acting in this movie is incredible. But yeah, Jason Schwartzman does an awesome job because he pretty much every couple minutes has a has a tirade that he cuts himself off on. Like he he stops his own tirades because of uh, an uh, epiphany or an aha moment where he's like, oh, this is what they're teaching me. And, and so 
there's almost a depression that sets in on him at this moment. Like he's like, oh, like it takes him a while to recover from this. Yeah, this is a major moment of realization for Albert where his mom could have so easily been there for him in a moment of need. And this is just a good thing to think about with children is that they, even though their problems seem small to us, they're big to them. And they are, human beings are not great at just dealing with things that don't go their way as a rule. Like that's the default. It's hard. And it's even harder for children. Because because they haven't developed capacities yet. And so you need to listen to kids when they're telling you about their problems. Because even when they're small, they're big to them. It's a contextualization thing. They haven't experienced nearly as much. So they don't really know what a big or a small problem is. And they haven't... uh, they don't have a governor on their emotions to the same degree either through experience. So they're, it's intense. Like I remember my brother telling me, uh, my two year old nephew was freaking out. He was losing his mind. And I was like, what is going on like this? I'd never seen a kid do this to, to that degree. And my brother was just like, Oh, he's two. His emotions haven't caught up with his thinking. I guess we're led to believe like, it's probably not exactly like this in real life, but we're led to believe that all of Albert's anxieties and depression and frustration stem from this one instance, right? Where looking back, it's such a small thing his mom could have done. And there's another, there is another moment where he's crying in front of his friends, but he's trying to hide that he's crying. Uh, That's described that he, in his journal entry, he, you know, he doesn't want people to know that he's upset. And that's something that's been trained into him by his mother. Being upset doesn't have value. Yeah. And so we learn, oh man, like it's a massive moment of sympathy for Albert because I would say up to this point in the movie, he's been a little bit unlikable. And he's kind of seen as a buffoon or, yeah. or just not, not really someone, not someone you would take seriously. He has had no responsibility for his own actions. He takes no accountability or action or it's like everything is everyone else's fault. And so like that's, that's just kind of a generally unattractive persona to put out there into the world. And he's so, not really that self-reflective. Yeah. So, like, I wouldn't say we dislike Albert throughout the movie, but we're not really, I don't know, like, he's just not a pretty character up until that moment of a, a wash of sympathy comes over because you see, oh, man, is it, so this is where he came from, which, again, is a great little lesson about learning about other people when they are, de- like, paying attention to, there are a lot of things other people do that demonstrate something where I'm like, oh, I don't like that. And knowing a little bit more about their past, where they were raised, things that were done to them, it just, learning more about a person gives more sympathy and compassion. And yeah, so it, it should be a goal to learn more about people that I guess aren't beyond the pale, which is like, how do you know when that is? But you do your best. It's I forget who said it, but someone said, don't judge someone you don't know what where they come from or what they've been through. And I think it is a, a great moment in the movie where it's like, we've kind of been judging Albert up to this point. And now we're like, oh, that would that would definitely still my emotional growth if my parents hadn't comforted me in tragedy. Absolutely. And no one else in the movie has really treated Albert well, except Tommy. A little bit Bernard and Vivian, but they're, again they're kind of always approaching it from a professional standpoint. And they've kind of invaded his life, and he does kind of feel wrong by them. And also, this is the moment where Albert starts to trust Catherine because she's exposed this, and she's kind of, she isn't, I wouldn't say, empathetic about it, but 
she is saying, hey, this is what happened. Yeah. And so all the people that Albert has worked with and even the people that are his friends have not been sympathetic to his outbursts, right? Everything has been, why poems? Why are you doing this? This is dumb. And it took oh, Catherine. We don't want you to lead us anymore. Yeah. It took Catherine to dig really deep into that. Uh, so that, yeah, now he trusts Catherine, which uh, after this scene, he goes back with Catherine and they, he sits with Tommy. And they're. Um, <laughs> this is a, a hilarious scene. It's really funny because they're like, basically, I, I can't remember. I had, they were like wobble balls. Yeah, um, like they got a handle on them and they're a ball. They're a big ball though. Like when you're a kid, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you like you could sit on them and bounce around. And Albert is just hitting Tommy in the face with this ball. And Tommy's like, again, and whap, again, a whap. And then you just see a look on his face where pure transcendence or something. And then Tom- <laughs> or, or, or yeah, a, a blankness. And Tommy does it to Albert a couple times. And Albert. Uh, he's like, oh. well, the first time he does it, he falls off the bench because uh, Tommy's way stronger. Than Albert. <laughs> yeah, he hits him really hard. <laughs> he hits him really hard. Off. He just falls off the bench. So, like, I love how it just in a movie that is so highbrow and intelligent, they're not above above a little slapstick humor. No, not at all. And that yeah. contrast again is great because it's it's thoughtful and accessible. Yeah, and and so basically, it seems like this scene, we don't see this happen, but Catherine has told him that to do this. In order to get this feeling, which was as Tommy kind of, or sorry, as Albert describes it, as if he no longer feels anxiety. Yeah, he, it's the moment, there's a couple moments where you just get hit in the face with this ball and then they have this blank look and uh, Albert says, oh, you stop thinking. Right, you so stop worrying. Of, in, it's in a, a total moment of, uh, it brought to mind um, that, that line in Hamlet, I think it is, where Hamlet says, um, there is no good or evil but thinking makes it so or there is no right or wrong but thinking makes it so and it's like the negation of thought is i guess the logical end of this philosophy that Catherine is portraying and that's actually what brings peace because throughout the whole movie both albert and tommy are tormented by their thoughts like absolutely tormented it's what's giving them all of their negative emotions and all and it's what's making them treat everyone around them shitty and so basically once they've felt this they want to feel it forever they want to keep doing this they're like why don't we just sit here with this ball and hit each other all the time and we'll we'll have this feeling forever we'll just stay in this feeling uh what do they call it uh, well she calls it pure being i think yeah it's it's basically pure presence in the moment pure being and yeah. and they're like well we just want to stay here forever and, the, and then they're informed and this is the and this is this is how the problems are solved yeah this is how every life problem is solved they call it the ball thing where well we'll just do the ball thing until we don't think again and then that's what we'll do forever it's, so it's it's a really actually interesting thing they've they've discovered a a maybe temporary solution to their problem and they want to just hold on to that solution forever and i think that's a very human thing when you find something that eases the pain and anxiety that you're experiencing you can latch on to that thing and just want to keep doing it the ball thing doesn't solve underlying problems cuz it just makes you forget about them and yet i don't think that that's something people want to forget about a lot of the time so like more real life things would be sports or alcohol or hedonistic pleasures or like things that take you out of your problems 
one of one of for my for a momentary escape, right? Yeah, one of one of my good friends uh, wrote a line that I really enjoy, which she says, "Reality is a hard thing to take sober." Yeah, and we all have things we find, whether it's a ball hitting yourself in the face with a ball, or drinking, or or traveling, where we distract ourselves from these anxieties that we're experiencing. Yeah, and I don't want to demean those things either, because I think properly controlled uh, and moderated, they're actually really great. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love sports. I love beer. I love traveling, um, too. Another great Hitchens-isms is alcohol makes a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And as long as you have that healthy relationship with it, <laughs> trust me, I am a... Uh, uh, I like vices. People people with vices are more interesting. Moderation in all things, including moderation, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's also Aristotle. <laughs> yeah. I seem to be quoting him and not even remembering that I am. Hey, he was that good. <laughs> he just right. He's just infiltrated my mind. Well, if you, I mean, anyway, there's Aristotle gave us a lot. So uh, with the ball thing, Tommy and Albert are okay. We found the thing that we can do forever, so that we don't have to think about all the things that make us not want to be happy. And then Catherine's like, "Sorry, it doesn't work that way." Yeah. So she again adds another layer to the problem which there's always more layers to the problems, right? And she says that human drama is inevitable. It will always come up, and there's nothing you can do about it. And both Tommy and Albert are like, whatever, we'll just do the ball thing. We'll be pure big, and we'll just do the ball thing. Who cares? And then she's like, I'm about to introduce some human drama into this situation. Yeah, so as the audience, we see under the table, like they're on a, they're sitting at a picnic table, the three of them, and Tommy and Albert are on one side, and Catherine is on the other and we have a shot under the table, and Catherine puts her foot on Albert's crotch and starts massaging it, and you just see the look on Albert's face where, okay, we got to go now. <laughs> and so you, you get the impression that this doesn't happen to Albert a lot. But definitely not. And so he just takes off with Catherine, and they go out into the woods, and Tommy's like, where are you going? And Albert's like, well, we just got to go. Sorry, we'll see you later. <laughs> it's just they abandon Tommy. And then there's a very, what would you say, like primitive sex scene. Well, it's, it's in the very, woods? very odd. Like, I, I would say, in my opinion, this scene was the most... Um, bizarre. Bizarre. Yeah, bizarre is the perfect word. It was... It was I don't know how to And this was a it. bizarre movie. The, the whole movie's bizarre, but this particular scene, you're watching... Well, they're, they're putting mud on one another and dunking each other's face in the swamp, and you get this idea that part of that is because... Um, Albert really loves nature and wants to be connected to it, but there's it's this very odd sex scene. Yeah, I, I interpreted it as David O. Russell, the filmmaker, making a connection between the because humans are animals, and and the drama, the human drama, will always happen because of our animalistic uh, DNA at some level. Uh, he portrayed that as like the most animalistic sex scene you could have where they're just rolling in the dirt, like in the mud. They're in covered the, in mud. They purposefully cover swamp, themselves in yeah. mud. In a swamp. And I don't know, I found it like a kind of, it's it's weird, but it's a funny connection between the animalistic drama that's going to happen and portraying that symbolically through uh, just being so earthy. In, yeah, basically how in, our- in the oldest form of recreation let's say <laughs> yes, that humans yes. engage in and our our biology is always going to get there and, and maybe our ideology won't be able to deal with our bi- biology and so what happens is this leaves tommy out of yeah. the relationship prior to that all three of them had been a happy um platonic threesome 
and they were all equal members of it and enjoying each other's company. But now, because Catherine purposefully introduces the sexual element to her and Albert's relationship, uh, Tommy is the third wheel and he's left out. And he his line is, you, you hurt my feelings. Yeah, he, he walks in. So he ends up walking into some hotel room or room that they're, they're staying in. And he's basically like, how could you guys do this? You've cut me out. I'm not, I'm not part of it anymore. And the line that she uses that I, that I absolutely love is, there are unique moments where two people share the sorrow of existence. Yeah, and so, again, initially Catherine was just teaching them a lesson, right? Like it's part of her job to introduce the human drama element, why the ball thing won't work forever because we're always being sucked back in into the muck, which, yeah. you know, they were literally <laughs> sucked literally, into the yeah. muck from earlier. But I liked it too because then she also developed feelings for Albert and this was, it like showed that she is not immune to the things she's talking about. So she's involved in her own philosophy or like, taking seriously her own philosophy because she's actually someone who needs it as a as a medicine as well as a being a practitioner and a deliverer of it yeah and sharing that sorrow of existence she's still caught up in the sorrow of existence but she's that there's an idea of sharing that with another person that she sees i think to some degree as maybe a bomb for the problem but so maybe we go and talk about brad and yeah yeah we're we're gonna need to yeah brad and don so skipping a little bit through the chronology of the movie, but tell us a little bit about Brad. So Brad is kind of your quintessential, uh, he doesn't read books really. It seems like he, he's the books he does read are about sports. And, uh, and so he's kind of tried, they try to make him this jock. Like he's, he's almost an archetype of, you know, the successful, good looking guy with a good looking girlfriend who has a good job and maybe, and he's not, he's seemingly shallow and doesn't care about the same things that, Albert cares about, but he is and yet more he successful. pretends to, and he pretends to, and he's which more really su- fucking pisses <laughs> Albert off, yes. and it pisses us off as the audience a bit too. And we see him as shallow and kind of uh, empty of of meaning and depth. But uh, this Brad fellow, he he seems to be kind of vindictive and he, and manipulative. He he is an example of the manipulation that we that Catherine is talking about in the movie, and we see the manipulation through. He is infiltrating this open spaces group and basically taking it over. But not only that, he, he's not content with that. He wants to take over more of Albert's life. So he actually, early in the movie, goes and visits Bernard and Vivian and tr- hires them to be a de- an existential detective for him. Just to rattle Albert. That's the only that, reason. The only reason is he wants to rattle Albert. Because he doesn't he, think he has any existential problems. He's yeah, well, happy. the very first scene we're introduced to Brad, he's, well, other than like a kind of a conversation we don't hear between Brad and Albert, which is like a backstory to their relationship. He's, uh, they're in like a meeting, right? They're in an open spaces meeting and Albert is insisting on his poems. And Brad says, his line is, you got to reach people quick. They got no time for poems. And so he has like his Shania Twain cut out, which he also has a story about. And he's like emphasizing He's like a commercial, and he's advertising commercials, where it's like, you need the catchy, you need the jingle. The more inauthentic, the better, because people are too dumb to appreciate something beautiful with an advertisement or a piece of knowledge like, okay, we're trying to help this the ecological spaces in the town. Yeah, And I, actually, that's the second time we see him, because the very first time we see him is in a, in a boardroom as well, when uh, Vivian is wandering around 
this office building planting uh, recording devices, and he's talk and he's telling this story about Shania Twain. And the story is that apparently he'd met Shania Twain and they were involved in some kind of marketing together. And she had gotten hungry and she doesn't eat chicken salad sandwiches. She only eats tuna. And he says, okay. And he orders her orders four sandwiches. And he, and she's like, well, I don't trust that it's, there's no mayo in it. I hate mayo. And he, so he says, oh, I'm allergic to mayo. So I'm going to eat these two sandwiches in front of you to show you that there's no mayo in it. And then you can eat it. And she gets one and a half sandwiches through these, her two sandwiches. And then he laughs because it's uh, actually chicken salad. And the original sandwich she hates. He's deceived her into eating this. Yeah. So this story is great for Brad because it shows that he's on friendly terms with Shania and he gets one up on Shania. And so he's, he's friendly with a celebrity, but he's also smarter than them. And so it's just a good, and it's a good icebreaker. He's always asked to tell this story by his boss in a group of people. And it's, really central to his identity yeah because i think it it, when we boil it down his identity is very much i'm i'm better than people i'm uh, i have this veneer of being put together and not only am i all those things i'm very successful it brad is such a great character for this film because i have this same feeling uh, this i have a feeling with brad the same feeling that i have with um uh, Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad. Yeah, where yeah. at the start, I hate him. He's like I just have Brad. I have no enjoyment of like I, he's just he's swarmy. He's manipulative. He's just A so vindictive too. Like right? he's almost almost psychopathic in his self-aggrandizement and willing to go over anyone to climb the ladder and. He just sees such an easy target. Like he ta- he's taking advantage of Albert's weaknesses for his own gain and exploiting them and making Albert's weaknesses worse. So the only way Brad can improve is if other people around him go down. Like that's the only way he can go up. He has no interest in a non-zero-sum game of cooperation. So he's a very easy character to dislike as well because of his selfishness. And he... Um... He's picking. He's a bully. He's picking on someone. At the beginning of the movie, you're watching this, and you're like, why do you have to pick on someone like Albert? Like, you're so much better than him. That's Bully 101, though. Yeah. Finding the weaknesses in um, the person you're going to bully and exploiting that. And and he's 100% bullying him, following him around, and then he'll... He'll make jokes like, oh, I know you're really attracted to my girlfriend, and you have a crush on her. Yeah, so Brad's girlfriend is Dawn. As we mentioned earlier, she is the Huckabee's model she's in all the commercials it's her voice and it's naomi watts's character and so she's beautiful she has a kind of like she's she's skinned like she's superficial right it's skin deep she's selling she's selling clothes but really she's just a hot almost naked woman on all of the advertisements which are for huckabees which get all of the uh, eyeballs of potential consumers of huckabees products and when we're first introduced to her though we do notice one thing she's she seems insecure like she she can't get things right the first time and she doesn't like that um which plays into later in the story but i actually found her to be a fascinating character in that her relationship with brad which we'll get to in a little bit seems very uh, just as superficial as everything else in brad's life yeah, so even though Brad initially goes to see uh, Vivian and Bernard to 
rattle and get under the skin of Albert, he actually gets a little bit interested in what they're talking about. Because, and this is, again, the coolest, one of the coolest things of this movie is that somehow this asshole is humanized. And we kind of start to see, oh, like, he's got some of issues himself. And so he invites Bernard and Vivian to his house. Uh, and there's a scene with them and Brad and Dawn in the kitchen. And they're just kind of talking. And Dawn is not having, <laughs> like, what? why are there existential detectives? Like, what does that even mean? Why are they in our house? And she is not really on board with it. And Brad is kind of like, jokingly on board with it yeah he's jokingly on board i think my interpretation of it is he is a little bit interested but he doesn't know exactly why like there's an element of brad's subconscious attracted to vivian and bernard beyond just getting at albert and i really like that again because i think it like i just think humans in general are not aware of everything that's influencing their behavior well, and this goes down deeper to um, one of the things I like most about this movie myself, which is that Brad and Albert are actually fairly similar characters in that they're not self-reflective. Yeah, at all. Which is why they need existential detectives. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it is perfect that the characters, the two characters who need it the most, arguably Tommy too, but Tommy, Tommy seems to have already got the self-reflection and he's just angry. Yeah, about it. Reflecting has made him realize that everything's awful. Yeah, whereas um, both Albert and Brad still have that work to do ahead of them. Yeah, so so Brad has hired them, and he's written this poem uh, that act- that actually his girlfriend ends up reading somehow. Well, that Dawn ends up reading, and it's a poem that kind of exposes a lot of uh, pain and emptiness. Yeah, and so we're getting glimpses, little glimpses throughout the film of uh, the emptiness in Brad. He's got bravado. He's got a, a veneer and a persona projecting the stereotypical success story, the American success story, right? He's rich. He's got a big house. He's got a great girlfriend. He gets a promotion. He becomes the VP of public relations for Huckabees. So, like, on paper, uh, everything's coming up Brad, right? <laughs> like, yeah, everything, things, everything's things, coming up Brad. Things are looking great for Brad. And yet, he still, after this interaction with him and Dawn and the two and Bernard and Vivian, Dawn starts feeling like she's unfulfilled. Well, and there's some, I, my favorite scene is actually that kitchen scene. Cause there's a lot done there. One of the things we notice is that Brad, uh, doesn't have a very good relationship with Dawn. She doesn't seem to want him to have emotions. Uh, she's, finds it very odd that he's even interested in himself or any or any form of self-reflection uh to their act and this is an obvious one they she's mocking their sex life in front of these two detectives because we are led to believe that they've been together for a while and it is a surprise to her that he would have any interest in his self-reflection which means that he hasn't presumably for many years which because we do learn that there is a lot going on inside of Brad, that it, there is a, a real facade here between Brad and Don, because these like they haven't talked to each other about the, their deepest needs and deepest thoughts and feelings at all, which is not a good foundation for a long-lasting, loving, romantic relationship. I would <laughs> extend yeah. out into the world and say that <laughs> yeah. you know. And another thing that we I noticed in that scene was uh, 
Dawn is talking about the fact that they haven't, haven't been on a vacation in a long time. This yeah. Oh, and th- so all of these things are said really casually, but they're very cutting, right? The content of Brad and Dawn's argument in front of Vivian and Bernard is very cutting and hurtful, but they're saying it so casually and like in a comedic, jokey manner that it's even sadder, right? Yeah. So Brad says, why do we need to have kids? And uh, Don's like, what? I wanted to have kids. It's like, it's a complete surprise to the two of them that the other one doesn't think the way they think, which is crazy. Yeah. Like to have a long-term relationship of never discuss these things seems odd, but but it's it's very um, poignant in the film because we see how their relationship is really unhealthy. And then the perfect moment is he's sitting there and they're all in the room together. He's like, well, I have to go to a meeting. And so he leaves and Vivian and um, Bernard stay with Dawn. And that's where she starts to develop a more a deeper interest in what their work is. And you mentioned the vacation. Like that was just a good example of how they – we're going to go on a vacation, but now they can't. And there's an argument that they have about that. And it's, it's just a really, like, it made me think, oh, that is a perfect example of small little things that erode relationships because of just them not seeing why this thing is important or not important to each other. Brad is saying, it's, I'm a VP now. It's going to get better. Aren't you happy that, you know, your boyfriend is doing so well? We'll be able to go on vacation with these jet skis that they own. And he he's selling the future, but the present and the past haven't been any good. And not only is he selling the future, but he's selling to his girlfriend uh, a version of him that is external to the two of them together yeah it's not about their relationship it's about his status it's about his status and how because that's getting better she can't help but love him more and she just needs to be like patient for that which i think is a problem that some men really struggle with in relationships it's that they they see their own success and say well why don't you just look at me and respect what I'm becoming like the rest of the world is supposed to. But really, it's like you said, it's a veneer. It's not the reality of the relationship. It's not even about the relationship. The rela- relationship is between two people. But a uh, a public image or even your status isn't really a part of a relationship. Uh, not at all, right? It can be, well, it can be like, just another thing in life to think about, which is important for relationships, but it's not like there. Dawn is just, and she can't even really articulate this, but Dawn is aching for Brad to learn more about her. Yeah. She, and, she is so desperate for something authentic and meaningful in just the two of them relating to each other at deeper levels that go beyond his job. And it seems he is so oblivious to that. And even in the moments where he kind of sees that that's her problem, she, he just kind of dismisses her as why is, of course this is what matters. Like what, why are you being like this? And they work together, which is odd. And she is a sex symbol and he's very proud of the fact that he's with uh, a sex symbol. Yeah. Like that actually we find out in time that that's actually what he likes about her. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the totality <laughs> yeah. of Shocker, it. Shocker. Spoiler. <laughs> He likes her because she's hot. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Yeah. How we learn this is that because of Dawn's conversation with Bernard and Vivian, she starts totally changing her interaction with her job. 
So and, and with Brad, yeah, or, and, yeah, with Brad, with everyone. She like previous to every scene we'd seen Dawn thus far in the movie, she was wearing almost nothing, like a bikini or like a, a I don't even know what they're called. I think they're called crop tops. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah. know either. Um, not like a, basically, not her a fashion podcast. Her stomach is out all movie, yeah, and she's super hot, right? And so one of the things that is an offshoot of her conversation with Vivian and Bernard is that she realizes that she's putting all of her identity into her looks and she doesn't like that. So for basically the rest of the movie, she's wearing like a sweater, overalls and a bonnet. So we don't even really, we don't see her hair. We don't see anything of her skin except like her neck and her face. And she just, and and like, (laughs) she kind of looks like she has dirt on her face. The yeah, rest of the movie? She's eating something weird. Like, oh, yeah, she, she looks dirtier. She's eating chocolate, so her teeth are kind of black. Yeah, like. she's messy. She's very messy. And, and Brad hates this. Yeah, Brad just tells her, like, she's going through a phase. She needs to change it. She needs to go back to the way she was and be, be hot again, or she can't, she can't go to work. But he's not, like, he's not abusive about it. He's just very dismissive about it. And, and really doesn't want her to come to work like that. Yeah, it's it's... I don't know. He says something like, it's bad for the image, right? And, like, of course, that has been Brad's MO. The whole movie is image. Yeah. And so so what she then ends up kind of freaking out and showing up at work and, and losing her mind a little bit. Yeah, because she is not, like, she insists, hey, I'm the voice of Huckabees. And the manager's like, yeah, you're the voice of Huckabees, but you know, we're, we've decided to go younger. And so actually it's great. It's um, Isla Fisher is the new model of Huckabee's and, you know, she's hot, not wearing many clothes. And uh, Naomi Watts, Dawn is standing right beside her and looks at her and, and Isla Fisher's like, Oh, I love you. You did so good. Um, but then she's also like a little taken aback because Dawn is her appearance is the, yeah. the, frumpy. like frumpy, like we just described. And so Dawn is, a little bit angry <laughs> about this and there is a moment it made me think and obviously you and i are not going to be experts on this and we're talking way out of our depth but how much i wonder in a moment don realizes that since all of her identity was tied up in her looks and in her physical appearance and that is fleeting at best and it goes away for everyone yep and she's kind of left with like a sadness because she hasn't really developed any other parts of her personhood. She hasn't really, it doesn't seem anyway, like she's developed much sense of things outside of her appearance. And uh, one of the, actually one of my favorite David Foster Wallace quotes is if you make your, your make beauty, your God, you'll die a thousand times before you actually die. Right. And so this is a major death. Yeah. In, in the, in the, that David Foster Waller sense for Dawn. And yet there is this moment where Dawn is comforted by Brad in a sense. And he's like, everything's going to be okay. I just got my promotion. Go home. Get pretty again. Come back. We're doing great. Aren't you proud of me? Look at what I've accomplished. So all of this is like her saddest moment because she's face to literally face to face with someone hotter and younger than her who's super sexy and she's not and she's realizing oh this is actually all that anyone else cared about and i i just couldn't help but think like yeah like don was there no one around to help you understand that like to find true like love from someone or care or a, a, a an authentic connection to you 
looks are one thing that matter, but also like developing a personality, developing a knowledge about the world that you can contribute, like just so much more that you can contribute to someone's life than just how good you look. Because if you only care about how good you look, you're only going to get fuckers like Brad who yeah, want and, you. Yeah, exactly. You're and, a fantasy and fantasies last three to five minutes, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Which is a point that's brought up. <laughs> exactly, right? And and she is realizing this. And in her moment, basically her moment that the cat's died. Her cat has died. She's realized. Yeah, like Albert's cat is this moment where she sees out Exactly, Fisher. and Brad's response is, go get pretty. Yeah, and so <laughs> worst possible advice. And actually, just before that, probably the best line in the movie is where... Uh, Marty, who's the manager of Huckabee's, is like trying to console Don because Don's going and like raging on him about why is this new girl here? Why am I not doing it? And he says something like, well, Huckabee's has a image to hold up and you're just not meeting that image right now. And so she just says, Fuckabee's <laughs> and which storms off, which... Marty really doesn't like. Well, and then he's just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And she said fuckabees. She said fuckabees. And it's just like, it, it's so funny because it's just, <laughs> she's so angry. Fuckabees. And he's so like traumatized yeah. by this. Because she is still the voice. Hundreds and thousands of people recognize her as the spokesperson for Huckabees, right? So it's not going to be good for Huckabees if they become fuckabees. Exactly. And so that's what, and then Marty tells Brad, okay, you need to go calm her down. She's losing her shit. So basically, uh, he's then goes into his office, and who's sitting in his office after uh, Don leaves? Well, Bernard, Bernard and Vivian. Yeah, and this is m- my second favorite scene in the whole movie, and and maybe some of the best acting in the movie. And uh, I'll let you describe it, and then I'll tell you why. I like okay, it. so Brad is a little bit surprised to see Bernard and Vivian because after he left them in that kitchen scene he was dismissive he was like as equally dismissive of them as he was of dawn and so he's surprised to see them because uh, they've also been continually monitoring him to because that's what they do they're the they're the omnipresence right so and strangely able to be omnipresent in well actually they're not omnipresent in albert's life anymore because now he's with Catherine, so they don't really seem to be involved that much on a little bit but they seem to be focused on brad now but then as soon as he gets over his surprise he goes back to his swarmy condescension where he's like, oh, okay, you, we, you're not going to crack me. I, I'm wise to your stupid game and I don't give a shit because my, my outward life is going great. So there's nothing you can do to hurt me. He, he has a false, he, all the defense mechanisms come out, which are his pride. And, he, and he's like, I don't want the contract anymore. Go away! I've already paid. You. I'm gonna fire you, and they're like, yeah. "You can't fire us." And what? It's in this clause. They and have they a bring clause. This massive contract out. And they're like, "Look, you can't get out of this." Yeah, like the contract cannot be terminated by either party, <laughs> which is a really weird contract. <laughs> yeah. He and then he says something like, "This is not why I hired you, right?" And he's betraying there. He hired them, and, and Bernard even says, "Well, we know why you we you hired us. You hired us to get under Albert's skin," and and then there's even a little crack there where Brad's like. Oh, you knew about that? And Brad's like, give us a little credit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? He's like, come on, we're pretty good at what we do. And so he's got this bravado, right? He's got his huge defense mechanism out, and it is his ability to not give a shit about anything except himself. And he's proud about that. And what happens, though, is that uh, Vivian has actually been recording him telling the Shania Twain Mayo story. 
and I think she's got she, like on film they show about six or seven different dates where he's telling the same story and every time you see Brad's face crumble a bit because the whole point that Vivian was making in that moment is like uh you're you're a phony yeah. and everyone knows it and she it's such a beautiful scene cuz she she plays this for him at the beginning he's so proud of the story and then he hears it again and then he hears it again and then he hears it again and his face slowly falls and you see he's slowly realizing and then she lays it out fully she's like you're telling this story for the following reasons one because when you talk about Shania Twain it makes you feel like you're friends with celebrities and two you're you're doing this because you want to show that you can even outsmart those people right and and immediately he, not immediately but like you could just see in a similar fashion to what Catherine did in uh, Albert's parents' home, we see Brad fall apart. Well, it's the first moment in the movie where I actually feel uh, even an iota of compassion for Brad. Yeah, and it isn't just compassion in that moment. I think it's it's almost like you feel sorry for him. Yeah, totally sorry for him because he. it's the moment where he comes face-to-face with the really dirty, ugly, dark thing inside of him, which is his need to be the center of attention even if it's not earned because with all of these different times where he's told the story, it's become his crutch and it's actually become the thing that everyone around him demands of him. Right. So he's, he's become a caricature of himself and, and that really seems to hurt him. Like when he realizes that he's a caricature of like other people don't treat him as a real person. And this can be uh, something that I thought about for myself, and I think everyone should really contemplate is, why are you telling the same stories over and over again? We all tell stories, because we all have stories that we define ourselves by, and I don't think that's a problem. But some stories we tell because they get virtue signal. They, they tell people, oh, I'm important, or what, maybe I worked in some place. Or they're like a patina over some sort of insecurity. Exactly. It's it's you tell these stories to make people like you more or respect you more because you you do feel insecure. That's the perfect way of describing it. And I think we all have stories like that. Maybe we met someone famous. Or instances. Yeah, or we worked somewhere important. And I think that's an interesting psychological uh, analysis to do on yourself. What are the stories I'm telling to people that I want them to see me in a different light from? And why am I telling them? Mm-hmm. Because... In no part of the story that Brad is telling, the Mayo Shania t- story, in no part of it is he coming out as like the butt of something or the goat. None of it is at his expense. It's all at someone else's expense. There's, so there's he, no self-deprecating humor. None. It's all just about. He's how the great winner, he is. and Shania is the loser, and that's kind of his whole persona throughout the whole movie has been: I'm a winner, and you're not, and. It's only when Vivian reveals this to him that he's doing this that he actually like legitimately comes face to face with his own phoniness and it, it hurts him. And so the next scene is he goes into a meeting like he's immediately this is got his a meeting. first important board meeting at the table with like all first, the vice presidents. Yeah, he's the he's the new vice president of public relations for Huckabee's and because of this interaction he's just had with Vivian, he's disheveled, he's sweaty, he looks grubby. And what is the very first thing that Marty, the manager, asks him to do to these new VP head honchos? He asks him to tell the Shania Twain story. And it's the Mayo story, and he's like, he throws up. Like, he just, he's just so 
existentially tormented now by realizing this is who I am. And no one actually cares. You're just, he's a pawn for someone else. And he thought he was the shit. And now he's realizing, no, I'm just a shit that a piece of shit that is used to grease palms and make people happy. At and least. make it sound like we're around important people. We're getting stuff done with, with celebrities, whatever it might be. And so he's pigeonholed into playing a role for others, which breaks him down. Like he's totally broken down. In fact, he vomits in the meeting, has to leave. And, and this is when everything starts falling. So while this is happening, tying all these characters back together, Catherine and Albert have, through some form of vindictiveness of their own, decided to set on fire Brad's jet skis, which are in his garage. And <laughs> what ends up happening is the, the whole house catches on fire. And so we cut back to Tommy kind of sitting alone because he's been alone now without his friends. And he's, he's just, at the fire hall he's, kind of And he's moping TV. around. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a hilarious scene where he doesn't get, like when the, when the alarm goes off, uh, he doesn't get on the fire truck. He gets on a bike and everyone's like, what are you doing? And then, but then the fire truck gets caught in traffic and he's, he gets there before he gets else. there before them. And he's like, this is what you get fuckers. Like <laughs> He's just passing him and they're all like shaking their head. And so then, but when he gets, this is actually, it's weird, but it's beautiful when he gets to the house, Dawn is in the house. So she's actually passed out from, from smoke inhalation. Yeah. And so he's there to save her, but he doesn't, there's no conversation. She's passed out, but he just kind of immediately falls in love with her. That he doesn't even remember to take her out of the house. He just kind of lies down beside her and like looks her in the eyes and well in the face. And he also passes out <laughs> from smoke inhalation. So the next scene you actually see when the fire truck arrives, Dawn and Tommy in the ambulance holding hands, holding hands with oxygen, getting oxygen. And it's like it's just such a funny contrast because like Tommy is so hurt and sad, but he still in the moment is so enraptured with dawn that he doesn't even notice that there's smoke everyone he's going to pass out because he just is so connected to this person and you know it was nice it was nice and it's later described by him and you see it in the movie as that moment where he realized there is an interconnectedness to everything yeah and because dawn like there hadn't been a scene yet with tom and dawn and tommy and she is just coming off of being with someone who doesn't give a shit about her and tommy gives a lot of shits about her and so it's exactly what she needed and he needed they both needed each other so bad that the universe had to bring them together right yeah he needed something to care about because all he really cared about was how awful everything was yeah and so then and they've left and brad shows up and he's just torn like he's he's lost his job he's lost his sense of self-worth and now his house has burnt down so he has nothing and Albert and Catherine are still in the yard and Albert sees Brad, his nemesis throughout the entire movie. And he sees Brad defeated, broken down. And it's in that moment where Albert realizes that Brad is him and he is Brad. Like this whole movie has been kind of like hinting at this connectivity. And it was just so great how at the end, the the character that Albert hates. So at the, throughout most of the movie, Albert hates Brad and everyone loves Brad. And by the end of the movie, everyone hates Brad and Albert likes Brad because yeah. Albert is the only one who understands what Brad is feeling in that moment. And he like encourages him and says, hey, you know what? It's okay. It's, it'll get better. And it's like it showed Albert's growth and it was a great narrative move to see how they 
became the same thing when they were so different at the start. And there, there is another scene where they go to this gala that was supposed to be for the uh, for the open spaces announcement by Huckabees, and it turns out that Brad had this whole scheme where he was going to save a part of it, but or part of the forest, but like cut down a lot of the forest and the and the uh, and the swamp. Uh, that scene, I think, was less significant. It's funny, but less significant than what you just described. With that moment where the picture is taken, because uh, Catherine takes a picture of Brad crying. Uh, and it's like, look, y- your enemy has been crushed and now knows the misery of life just like you do. And even Brad needs now a friend, someone to help him work on building himself back up. Needs that... that- Buddy or the and, and and this is what I meant a little bit earlier with the Jesse Pinkman comparison where like by the end of Breaking Bad, Jesse Pinkman to me is the moral hero of the show and I love him. And he starts inept and terrible and I hate him, right? So it's the it's like a incredible character arc. With Brad, by the end, he's been so stripped of everything that you kind of see like, oh man, even the people that I have the most visceral dislike for somewhere down there there's there's a person that needs something you know yeah, and that that, it, that really and comes, albert sees that yeah and it comes from the self-reflection that albert's been going through as he realized that he'd been neglected as he realized that he hadn't been handling things very well for himself and as and and then he sees so the moment that tommy sees the connectedness is in love but in a sense the moment that albert sees the connectedness is in loving his enemy that's that's a couldn't put a finer point on it myself and then just kind of one of the last little bits of the story that was so interesting too was that the full like again Catherine Bernard and Vivian throughout this whole movie kind of are omniscient but they're also like their foible or their flaw is their disregard for each other and like how Vivian and Bernard kind of really hate Catherine and she hates them and of course, hilariously, it's Albert who has the insight for them where he says, Catherine, you're too dark. Um, Bernard and Vivian, you're too naive and you need each other because there are elements of truth in both of your ideas. And uh, it's stupid for you to be fighting. And, and one of the lines that I took away that I really liked was uh, two philosophies were born out of that one pain. Yeah. And. Really, I, I guess I would say that this is kind of a hero's journey of self-reflection. The I love or I heart Huckabees is Albert's and Brad's hero's journey of realizing is is breaking down their misconceptions about reality, and that's done through for for Brad realizing that he's just his veneer isn't real, and for our friend Albert, it's from actually realizing that there is a lot of pain and suffering in his own life that he hasn't been addressing. And where we come from Albert at the start, (laughs) not Albert doesn't want the detectives to look where he needs them to look the most. And like, what is a greater meditation on the, the dark sides of ourselves? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where the, the parts that need exposed the most are the ones we least want exposed about ourselves. And sometimes we don't even know they're there. And sometimes we need a, a friend or a mentor or someone in our life to, to point out, hey, you have this thing you're not dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I loved that even though it was Bernard and Vivian or Catherine were portrayed as detached from this and like educating 
Albert and Brad, they needed their own education from Albert. So it was like a two-way system where the, the dynamic tension between the philosophies, the interconnectivity and the total non-connectivity, they needed each other to not be stagnant. And to solve Albert's existential crisis. Yeah, he needed end. both of them, right? Exactly. And so he kind of chastises them a bit and says, yeah, well, you need each other. Don't be so highfalutin and on your high horse about why you're better. And I mean, just made me think a little bit about some of the squabbles between like <laughs> professors or academics <laughs> yeah. or like, I think there's a line, I think Steven Pinker says, uh, the reason that academic debates are so hostile is that the stakes are so low. <laughs> right? Another another line I heard on that was uh, student politics is so vicious because the, the stakes are so low. But yeah, I, yeah, love, that, right? I love that concept. And, you know? and so there is that element of niche squabble. Yeah. Well, you go back to what you were saying earlier about the activists, right? And how... They're intransigent. Yeah, yeah their their ideology. Their way or the highway. Exactly, and it, really that happened in this philosophy. These two philosophies. It was like, well, if you disagree with me, then you can't have anything to do with me. You're not you're not going to actually be able to do the job. Mm-hmm. And but the, the enlightenment that Albert got needed both philosophies, and he's pointing that out. And then they kind of learn that. I think they're like, oh yeah, okay, we'll get back together. And yeah, they're kind of standing there at the end of the movie, saying, "Case, we we solved this case." Yeah, and then. The end scene of the movie is so hilarious because it's it's Tommy and Albert reconciled sitting on the original rock from the very beginning of the movie, and they're having a conversation. Like they're they're made up. They are friends again because now Tommy has his meeting with Dawn and and Albert has Catherine, and they have learned a lot. And Tommy's a lot less angry now, and um, they're talking about how they're gonna go protest some sort of construction site somewhere i think he says chain myself to a bulldozer well yeah so so yeah we're gonna chain ourselves to a bulldozer and then my favorite line of the movie it's just so good where uh tommy says should i bring my own chains and albert says well we always we do. always do we always uh, do <laughs> and that's a great way to, to and then it fades this. out yeah like into the we credits. always do bring our own chains yeah and again like i I'm reminded of that part in Hamlet where there's no right or wrong, but thinking makes it so, and sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. And it was, by the end, all of the four characters who were helped by the detectives, Tommy, Albert, Brad, and Don, are all in a better spot than they were at the start of the movie, and they all had to go through some really painful stuff to get there. Some painful confrontation of themselves. That's my favorite part of And... They, it, what it demonstrates for me is that there's no cheap, you don't get knowledge or enlightenment easy. Yeah. You know, like they had to go through some shit existentially and they're all better for it. And they're on a better trajectory than they were at the start. They just had to go through some really hard stuff to get there. It's actually a really wholesome movie when you think about it. And it, it yeah. And, but it makes me feel like, okay, well, I need to be more into doing things that seem hard. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's not the easy stuff that ha- makes me stronger or smarter or better at anything. Well, I think that pretty much sums up our thoughts on, on yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, this movie is hilarious. It's it's great. It's bizarre. It's strange. And uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, definitely watch it. If, if you, you haven't already. I hope you have, but it's a great film and it should provoke a lot of thought. 
if you can get over the weirdness. Yeah. So uh, the weirdness is the charm, though. Yeah. Anyway, really appreciate your listening. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, I'm Luke Mason, and I'm David Parker. See you next time. Okay.